Welcome to the public morality. Never before in American history has political discourse been at such a feverish pitch of strident opposition. Access to information and multiple news outlets, as well as other factors, have combined to place us in silos of sameness where only those with similar thoughts may enter. We become like the blind men and the elephant, each touching a different part of the elephant, and each convinced he possesses the whole elephant. Likewise, do we see our political perspectives as a sum total of the American experiment? To discuss political discourse, we are joined by award-winning historian of political rhetoric, Professor Jennifer Merchia. Professor Jennifer Merchia, thank you for joining me on the public rally this morning. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. When you observe our current political discourse, how do you measure it in terms of the previous eras? Now, I ask you that, I, I realize that no era is neatly duplicates itself, but how do you see the current moment in relation to our past? It's pretty bad. Um, there's been some other you know, eras in American history where things have also been pretty bad. Um, but yeah, I would rank this in maybe the top four worst. <laughs> Um, so I'm thinking maybe of uh, the era with the anti-federalists and the federalists, um, you know, even extending into, um, you know, around 1800 and um, that election, you know, where people who had been friends for a long time you know, talked about uh, crossing the street so they didn't have to doff their hat at one another. Uh, things were pretty tense at that point. Um you know, things were also, you know, again, very tense between 1824 and 1828, the grudge match re-election campaign for Andrew Jackson and John Quincy Adams. Um, lots of smearing uh, one another's reputations and names and uh, calling one another and their families bad things, um, which I won't belabor. Um, obviously, leading up to the Civil War, um, bad times, you know. 1960s, also very chaotic and, um, and violent, um, you know, and then today. So, yeah, it's pretty bad. In representative democracy, is it possible, in your view, to be a partisan citizen? I mean, given the complexity of American democracy and what that demands, um, don't we have to at some level be one with the other or does it have to be one or the other? I'm just going to say. Yeah. So um, I wrote a book about this, uh, about the way that the founders imagined that citizens would participate in a government based on the will of the people. Um, and uh, it's fascinating to me to think about, you know, one way of understanding it the way that the founders did is that a citizen is in fact an officer of the government, um, right? That it's an, an actual role within the whole sort of political community. Um, and as an officer of the government, your responsibility uh, is to pay attention to politics, it, you know, and political news and information is uh, to vote if you have the right to vote, uh, which of course not everyone did. Um, and uh, to avoid party and faction, right? Because that would be, um, 
well, what they thought of as a cabal, um, which is, you know, sort of a secret group that is um, interested only in advancing its own cause um, and against the common good. And so you were meant to avoid politics um, through partisanship. And they said those things while they also, you know, sort of coordinated with one another and created political parties. Um, and so, you know, if you talk to a political scientist, they'll tell you that you can't have, you know, politics in America without parties, but that was not the way it was supposed to be. Um, and for the founding fathers, at least what they said, um, you know, which again, didn't <laughs> follow what they did, um, you know, those things were antithetical. If, if uh, giving your last answer, if, the political science offer that you can't have politics, I guess, in America's democratic Republican form of government without parties. Um, doesn't that statement uh, put us in tension with the preamble of the Constitution that says we the people in that in our current system? Wouldn't it be fair to say that the parties are the ultimate beneficiaries of politics? Absolutely. And and this is the thing. Um you know, where I would quibble or disagree with political scientists, um, right? So the way that the party system has evolved in American politics is that the parties benefit the most from the party system, um, right? They control the primary process, for example, that has only really been around since the early 1970s. Um, they control how elections are run. They organize how political power is wielded within the House and the Senate, um, right? And so the way that we have enacted our political principles um, is through partisanship. But that was those were choices that we made. Um, and, and really starting in about 1828 with the election of Andrew Jackson. Um, you know, they were very clear at that time. Um, Jackson was a autocrat kind of guy. And he was, uh, he was accused of being King Andrew. Um, and his Democratic Party was, um, was very much about uh, the to the victors belong the spoils of the enemy. And you know, your your opposition was your enemy. Um, and if you didn't toe the party line, you shouldn't have a post of profit. Um, you know, or responsibility under the government. And so that has sort of been the, the way <laughs> since then. So, so in that context, uh, moving from old Hickory, Andrew Jackson, and going all the way to the, the present moment, when you hear statements like America first, now on the surface that it sounds innocuous, but in a sense, doesn't that risk undermining the ethos of American democracy, at least as the founders created it? Oh, it absolutely does. And um, you know, to sort of carry that conversation forward, we were partisans for a long time. That was how we were positioned by political parties and you know the media and whatnot. But really, with the um, advancements in communication technology and the way that we all now have, you know access to social media, some 90 some percent of Americans are online every day. Um, you know, we're actively trying to shape political news and information as much as we are consuming it. Um, and in fact, we've been turned again, you know, we were imagined to be citizens, we were turned into partisans 
um, we've been turned again into propagandists. And so when I hear a phrase like America first, um, you know, a slogan like that is designed uh, to have propaganda power. And in fact, it does. Well, I've, I've long, I've long held, I'm actually I'm writing a book on it, but I've long held that the fall of the Berlin wall in 1989, that began uh, a slow march by America to ultimately where we are today to view uh, each other as existential threats. And I wonder how you saw that. Oh, that's interesting. I look forward to reading your book. Why do you uh, locate it at 1989? Well, I, I, I think it's the overt decline of American democracy with the fall of the Berlin Wall. It, it seemed to me that the wall, or, or the Cold War more, more broadly, uh, held us together. There was a line we wouldn't cross uh, because we had, at least we had this common enemy. And we seem to be crossing those lines. We don't even have the common enemy. I mean, there. I mean, we have. Don't we have people now who would say that? Well, I'm talking about elected officials in Congress. Well, Putin maybe maybe may misunderstood uh, in terms of the invasion of Ukraine. So that's how I that's how I frame that. Yeah, that's a really interesting argument. It's um, it's sort of a tragedy to think that the United States um, political community was held together through enemyship, right? That, <laughs> that the only thing that we had in common was a common enemy. Um, yeah, I, like I said, I look forward to reading your book. Hmm. So, so, but, but we have, and I, I guess I, um, where, where I wanted to go with this, with this, this line of question, I, I'm trying to get at this whole notion of seeing other Americans as existential threats. Is, is that always been part of the American narrative? Is, is, is it what we're experiencing now something newer or, 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 or at least a different variety? Um, yeah, I mean, so I think that if you look back through American history, you could find from the very beginning examples of that, um, right? So some people have always been constituted as an other um, you know, whether it is African-Americans who were enslaved, whether it is abolitionists who, you know, were wanting to free the slaves, who are viewed as miserable fanatics, um, right? Like it, it, women who wanted the right to vote. Anytime people have demanded power um, that they didn't have, you know, access to, they've been treated as enemies. Um, you know, it. I think there's a long history, actually, in this country. You could tell that story, too, right, of mm -hmm. um, treating one another as less than human, as not real Americans, um, you know, and, and that's that's part of our history, too. Yeah, and, and I, I guess I guess what, what got me sort of fascinated on the topic is um, just today that that if we've sort of codified um, in factions, <laughs> the definition of American. So each faction has its definition of American. So if you don't fall into that faction, ergo, you're not American. That, that, I mean, that, I don't know. I mean, I wonder how you saw that, but that seems to yeah. be a new phenomenon that, 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 that's unprecedented in the manner that, that it's now held. Yeah. So I think maybe, um, a difference, a 
so I'm a communication professor. And so I'm going to see a lot of things through that perspective of, you know, how are people communicating and what are, what are the messages that we're receiving? Um, and, you know, we used to have uh, what was thought of or what's called a mass culture. Um, and it, it was sort of short-lived um, <laughs> in the United States, but from, you know, sort of the invention of radio and the diffusion of that technology into everyone's homes where people would, you know, sort of be able to gather around the radio and listen to the same programs um, through to about, you know, that point that you mentioned um, of the fall of the Berlin Wall, where cable had proliferated in into enough homes um, that it really bifurcated, you know, the sort of three or four channels that we had um, in terms of a mass viewing audience. Um, so, so that period of time where we had a mass culture, you could talk to the whole nation at the same time. And when you did that, you would give them similar messages, right? Because you couldn't say something, you know, that was targeted to just this specific demographic or just this group of people in this state or this community or whatever, um, you were talking to everybody. And so when you talk to everybody, you included, you know, everybody more or less. Um, and, and that helped to uh, pull us together in a way that we could imagine, right, that, that we were this nation. So mass culture has some downsides, but it has at least that benefit of allowing us to see ourselves as part of, you know, a group. Um, together, cohesive. Mm -hmm. And um, we've only become more fractured in our media, obviously, since 1989. Um, and so it's really difficult now to even have, you know, a television program in common or a song in common that you're listening to, um, you know, with, with someone who's, uh, you know, in the office next to you or, <laughs> you know, <laughs> your neighbor. Um, and that plays a big role because, you know, not only do we not have that ability to see ourselves in one another and have that thing that's sort of neutral that we can talk about, but it also allows propagandists, politicians, whoever, to communicate messages to us in very, very tightly niche, targeted and segmented ways. Um, and so, yeah, they can tell you, you know, that you are the quintessential American because, you know, they know that you like to fish and only fisher people, uh, you know, are real Americans. Um, or they can tell you that you're the real American because, you know, you listen to this kind of music and those other people who don't listen, they're not. Right. And those kinds of things are appealing. Right. We want to be the real Americans. Um, and so I think part of the problem is is the lack of mass culture. Well, when one considers that our democracy hinges on the ideals of liberty and equality per the Declaration of Independence, the, uh, and, and granted, the understanding of those ideals have varied over time. Uh, with that said, are, are we not ex experiencing, uh, at least in my view, a predictable downside of representative democracy? Because not everyone will be beholden to those original virtuous ideals uh, the way they were originally crafted. So don't, is this just some of the growing pains of a democracy that we've got to accept that there's going to be different ways of seeing things, especially since these things are ideals and not something uh, committed to paper per se? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, 
we constantly need to rededicate ourselves to um, those principles. And so uh, scholars in my field study communal events, you know, things like parades and, um, you know, celebrations that communities have, epideictic celebrations is what we call them. Um, and, and when we study them, we look at how it is that, you know, we constitute the nation, reconstitute the nation, call it into being, um, talk about who we are as a people, what our values are, um, you know, what we value and how we live up to those values. Um, and, and those kinds of discourses are really, really important. Those kinds of communal moments where we gather together and, you know, whether we're listening to political leaders talk about, you know, what it means to be an American on the 4th of July or what freedom and liberty are, whatever, um, or whether we're, we're listening to the State of the Union address is a different kind of, you know, sort of political communal event. Um, or even, you know, even something like the Super Bowl, <laughs> you know, that brings the most people together in this country. Um, you know, those are opportunities for us to talk about our values. And we don't talk about values very much. Um, I think one of the interesting things about Joe Biden as a speaker, um, you know, say what you will about his policies or whatever, but as a speaker, he is very comfortable talking about values um, in a way that most politicians don't talk about values. And so he seems to see America for its best, you know, self. And he wants to talk about that a lot. Um, and if you hadn't noticed that before, listen to him. Um, he's not the greatest performer of his speeches, right? But he, um, his message is, is very interesting in that regard. Uh, and scholars like me, um, when we study the presidency, we call that playing the priestly role of the president, um, meaning that the president as this national figure is called upon to tell us about who we are and to carry us through difficult times um, by holding us accountable to our values. And so, he, you know, if you listen to him, he's talking about bipartisanship. He's talking about American exceptionalism as an obligation that we have to ourselves, to the future, um, to other nations. Um, you know, and and trying to sort of inspire, I think, those fundamental views of who we can be or who who we want to be as a nation. Hmm. Well, the, in the first in the first part of your response, I know I'm dating myself now, but a a, a book came to mind when you're talking about being community. It's uh, Robert Putnam's book, Bowling Alone, and it yeah. just it, it just sounds like you were talking about the antithesis of the argument that Putnam was putting forward in that book. Yeah, so Putnam's argument, great book. Putnam's argument is more about participating in politics than it is about um, community events, although it is about community events too. Um, so Putnam's argument is that we have um, what's called bridging and bonding social capital. Um, and so bridging social capital is where you are connected to people who aren't like you, people who aren't your family members, people who aren't your you know, direct neighbor, people you don't work with um, or go to school with or whatever. Um, and 
the bonded social capital is, you know, the other thing, the family members, people you went to school with, the people, you know, in your cell phone that you text with or whatever, those are people you're bonded to. Well, it turns out that things like political trust, um, belief in institutions, and essentially like anything that holds together our democracy um, is strengthened through bridging social capital, um, through reaching out to the community, through the community, uh, to people who are not like you. Uh, and he starts off with this example, and this is why it's called Bowling Alone, um, is because he, his, his like first data point is that more people bowl now than ever did before, but fewer people have joined bowling leagues than they did in the past. Um, and that's important to him because, you know, you bowl with your friends maybe, but if you join a bowling league, you make new friends, you make new acquaintances, you 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 are around people that you wouldn't be bonded to. Um, and so he has an example of someone who needs a kidney and there's no donor for this kidney, but somebody in his bowling league who he doesn't really know um, hears about it and gives it to him. Uh, and from there, he says, you know, it turns out if you need a job, you need a job because someone you're bonded to already didn't give you a job, like couldn't hook you up. But if you have that bridging social capital, then you're more likely to find that connection, right? That you didn't already have. Um, and that over the last two or three generations, um, Americans have withdrawn from public life. We've stopped, you know, attending the PTA meetings. Uh, although <laughs> recently school board meetings have certainly been sites of uh, participation. Um, we stopped joining, you know, civic organizations and bowling leagues and things like that. And that being a part of those communal um, organizations and attending those meetings taught us the skills of democracy. It taught us how to get along with different people. It gave us bridging capital. It also made us trust the decisions that were made by those organizations. So, you know, if you get an email from your kid's school and, you know, they say, oh, we stopped serving apple juice and we're switching to milk or whatever. Um, you might be really confused by that choice, but if you had been a part of the PTA meetings where they discussed why they were making those choices, um, you know, and you were a part of that decision, even if you didn't agree with it, at least you would have known that the decision was made in a fair way, right? You would have more trust in the actual decision. Um, yeah, so it's a really important book. It's, it's saying similar things, but not exactly the same thing as saying, um, you know, that we don't have these these opportunities to hear people talk about values. And, and I mm -hmm. guess we would have them if we were participating more, um, you know, in the Rotary Club and things like that. And I, I was just thinking about the, the lack of you know, community and the lack of difference, because one of the things that I often share uh, with, with, with my class is that it is those that see the world differently, that hold the keys to our enlightenment. Now, if you accept that premise, then my question to you, professors, how do we get out of uh, these like-minded echo chambers to hear voices that differ from our own, that maybe challenge some of our pre previously held suppositions? Um, I mean, so what we know from <laughs> cognitive science and persuasion research is that it's really difficult to do that, that, that all of our instincts tell us to search out information that confirms what we already believe to be true. Um, and, you know, there's research about um, what's called 
um, system one and system two thinking or in persuasion research, it's um, talked about as the direct or indirect route to persuasion or, or heuristic thinking, different ways of describing it in different fields. Um, but the essential argument there is that we are cognitive misers. Our brain is busy doing other things like keeping our body in homeostasis. And it doesn't want to devote a lot of energy to thinking about difficult problems. It doesn't like new information. Um, and so that motivates us to reject persuasion. Uh, we have what's called um, a high uh, intolerance for persuasion. Um, there's a term for it that's not coming to my mind right now. But um, we, we constantly will reject people's attempts to teach us things or persuade unless we're open to it. Um, because it's just too taxing cognitively. And so um, because of that, we have the confirmation bias. We have, um, you know, these other biases that work together to make us think more like lawyers than like scientists. So we think that we think like scientists, that we're, you know, sort of neutrally uh, gathering together data and evidence about the world um, observing facts and that, you know, we are dispassionate in the way that we put them together and that we are open to any conclusion. But that is not at all the way we do where we are. We are actually um, actively building a case, discounting information that doesn't confirm what we want to believe um, and seeking out and putting more emphasis on information that confirms exactly what we want to believe. And so, to answer your question, it's really hard because all of our natural instincts tell us not to do that, not to reach out to the other voice, um, which is why it was so important when we did have a sort of, you know, uh, national culture of news where there were just the three channels and we sort of all heard the same stories because when we had that, they would try to present as many sides of those stories as they could. And so even if you didn't want to hear what the president was saying, because that wasn't your party and you didn't like the person, um, you still had to sit through that, you know, waiting for your favorite sitcom to come on, <laughs> you know, because there wasn't really another option. Um, if you changed the channel, it was going to be a pretty similar thing. Um, and so because of that, we, we got exposed to a lot of ideas and they became familiar. And once things become familiar, then you're less resistant to being persuaded by them. But the way that, again, you know, our media has evolved and these echo chambers have evolved, the reason why they're so successful is because it makes it super easy for us to confirm our priors. And that's what our brain wants to do over and over again. So acknowledging that and recognizing it, you know, you can sort of try to take advantage of the fact that you do have the opportunity to listen to other people, but you have to know that it goes against all of your basic instincts to do that. I know uh, you have been critical of the use of language uh, and its effectiveness of former President Trump. Uh, I, I guess when I look at the present moment, I, and I'm wondering, might we be too guilty, by me guilty of, of placing too much blame on the present moment rhetorically on the Trump phenomenon? Because couldn't one suggest I, I mean, that this phenomenon began prior to 2015? Your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, 
it did begin prior to 2015. So I wrote a book um, called Demagogue for President, The Rhetorical Genius of Donald Trump. And it's about his 2016 campaign. And in that book, I try to explain that in 2015, we had an historic crisis of disengagement and distrust, of polarization and frustration, right? Those are poison in the American political system. Um, And they were all at crisis levels, right? We had never in the time of polling, right? And probably going back to the Civil War that we don't have opinion polling that goes back that far. We had never had a time in American history where so few people trusted the government, one another, political parties, um, where people were not, you know, where people were, were so frustrated with the way things were going um, and so polarized. Any other politician, and in fact, many politicians that ran for the Republican nomination um, in 2016, any other American politician historically would look at that situation and they would say, what can I do as a statesman to try to ameliorate this problem? What can I do to try to unite the nation, to build trust, right? To make people trust one another and the government and its decisions. That's what a statesman would do. Donald Trump looked at that situation, this crisis in American history, and said, how can I take advantage of that? What can I say to make it worse so that it works for me to get me elected? And that's what my book's about. It explains how he did that. Um, And so, yeah, I would blame him (laughs) for doing that. Uh, I suppose a cynic would say, well, you know, the guy wanted to be president. Um, you know, why why wouldn't he exploit anti-democratic sentiment to his advantage? Um, but that's a demagogue. And that's not someone who uses language and communication um, in a way that's democratic. It's someone who's using language and communication as a weapon. I hold that, and I sort of touched on it earlier, that the importance of difference in a democratic republic form of government but in, I believe it was January, I believe it was last year, 2022, the Republican National Committee um, offered the January 6th was legitimate public discourse, quote unquote. So even w- with difference, can it be something just so unfettered from reality or, or has it, that just become the cost to live in a so-called free society? Yeah, this is the question of the moment, isn't it? It's. Um, It's sort of our everyday experience is who gets to decide uh, (laughs) what is good communication and what isn't, right? Who gets to control the algorithms? Who gets to control artificial intelligence? Who gets to control the platforms? And who gets to speak um, in public and how? Um, You know, and so for me, the standard should be what kind of communication is good for democracy versus what kind of communication is not good for democracy? Um, and so when we talk about what is legitimate political communication or what is legitimate protest, um, I think on January 6th, you could find that there. Uh, there were people who went to hear Trump's speech 
who, um, you know, were there for legitimate reasons. They had been convinced that, um, that their vote didn't count, that, you know, the election had been stolen from them. Um, that's not true, but they had been convinced that it was true. Um, you know, and they were there listening. They had signs, they cheered and chanted. Um, you know, that was, that's a legitimate political occasion. But what wasn't a legitimate political occasion, uh, what wasn't a legitimate political speech is what happened at the Capitol. Um, and so, you know, what connects that, what connects what happened at the ellipse uh, to what happened at the Capitol is Trump's speech. And the January 6th committee has, I think, done a fantastic job of explaining all of the different layers of things that were happening um, that led up to January 6th and what happened on that day. Um, I you might know, I don't know. Um, I contributed an analysis to them. I submitted a statement for the record. Um, and what I focused on is Trump's speech on that day and how prior to that speech, um, he had used language as a weapon. He had used war rhetoric repeatedly. Uh, and so I explained how in that speech, he used typical war rhetoric saying that something that is ours legitimately has been taken from us, um, that we are strong and powerful, um, that they are, you know, not even real people. They're illegitimate Americans, you know, to go back to what we were talking about earlier, you know, that they're not even real. They shouldn't count. Um, only our votes should count and it's been taken from us. And then he said fight and he said fight 19 times during the course of the speech. I didn't know this um, when I wrote my part, um, but the original text of the speech only had say fight one time, but Trump ad libs, right? And he embellished and uh, seized by the moment, perhaps, and his agenda, he told them fight, 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 fight 19 times. And you can hear the crowds responding, fight for Trump, fight for Trump. And there's a great video that was put together by Just Security you can find online where they show people in the crowd responding, fight for Trump, fight for Trump. And then marching to the ellipse, as he tells them to do, fight for Trump, fight for Trump, storming the Capitol, still saying, fight for Trump, fight for Trump. Um, and so to my mind, there's no doubt that <laughs> Trump incited this violence at the Capitol. And that violence, of course, is not legitimate political speech. It's he used war rhetoric and he had his followers attack the American government and the peaceful transition of power. All right. Now, here's the question I think is going to be the rub. I would imagine that some that are listening to this conversation are thinking to themselves, you know, Professor Murchia is spot on. If only my neighbor, coworker, friend, relative, et cetera, could hear what she has to say. In other words, is there a sort of self-exemption that we attach to such conversation that creates a civic, my word, civic immaturity? Like what you say is right, but it doesn't apply to me. It just applies to the other. 
and which creates a perpetuates a civic immaturity. Your thoughts? Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting phrase. Um, so I live in a conservative college town in Texas. Um, and so I'm surrounded by Republicans. Um, my dad, family member, close family member, you know, he watches uh, oh, Fox Max <laughs> all the time. Um, and, you know, so I'm used to talking to people who don't see the world through the way, you know, see the political world the same way that I do. Um, and those are difficult conversations. Um, <laughs> when we don't share common ground in terms of common facts, um, it makes it really difficult to resolve difference even if we have the same values, right? So, you know, I'm talking to my dad. My dad raised me. I love my dad. Um, I certainly have his values, like absolutely have the same values as him. But we watch the news or read the news in my case um, very differently. You know, we have very different sources of information. Um, he is also, you know, anti-partisan like I am. Um, you know, if you ask him, he'll tell you he's an independent. So will I, um, you know, like I said, we have similar political opinions, but we don't <laughs> because we don't have the same information. Um, and it makes it really, really difficult to bridge those divides. Um, I'm in a place where I am constantly having to do that, right? Because of where I live and who my students are and you know my family members and whatnot. But it's also very easy to cocoon yourself in discourses that don't ever challenge you to explain yourself. Um, and I don't have an answer to it. I mean, the, the main thing that I can say that I try to do is to focus on the relationship that I have with that person more than on, uh, you know, the politics of it. Well, as, as a communications professor, I, I would imagine uh, you would feel this way. We, in our public discourse now, I don't know if we've ever had it, and uh, they're holding a press conference and a reporter asked a very difficult question. And if the individual said, you know, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Let me get back to you. For a large swath, it seems to me, that would be political suicide. <laughs> the communication professor laughs. So your thoughts, go ahead. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I mean, so I think that's absolutely the right response. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how people would hear that. Um, it, it is political suicide, but that's an interesting take for, from you. Um, yeah, I mean, but I'm also someone who, even as an academic, even in the classroom will say, oh, I don't know. That's interesting. <laughs> like, let's look that up. Um, you know, so I feel pretty comfortable to say, you know, I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's it. <laughs> See, there you go. <laughs> it, it, it just thought. seems to me, it, you know, it seems to me that certainty has become a coin of the realm in, in our political discourse. Oh, that, yeah. I just don't believe in certainty like that, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. I, I, I understand. I mean, I mean, I, I don't. But it, it seems to the person who is certain seems to carry more legitimacy in the public discourse than the yeah. person who may be circumspect or willing yeah. to embrace nuance. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely fair um, as an observation. You know, we we're we're trained now, I think, through social media to be pundits, right? To say 
um, you know, and this is part of the way that we've been turned into propagandists, uh, but to say what we think or what we're supposed to think with the most certainty um, and in the most aggressive form possible. Uh, I, <laughs> that's punditry, right? Like that's not persuasion. Uh, that's not a meeting of the minds. That's, um, you know, people having platforms and, and using them aggressively. Um, yeah, that's not good communication to me. Well, that, that, that reminds me of the, the, the famous quote by, um, um, uh, oh, God, I can't think of his name now. Uh, it'll come to me in a minute, but he says, for every complex problem, um, there's an answer that's clear, simple, and wrong. So, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I mean, simplicity as an answer to political problems um, is, is usually fascist, <laughs> to be honest. Um, you know, there's a long history of people studying authoritarianism, fascism, whatever, its various forms. And people or political parties or political programs that offer simple solutions to complex problems um, tend to be authoritarian. So, with, with you know, with that, with that said, uh, oh, by the way, that was um, it, it just came to me. You know, my recall is getting slower, but it just came back. That was it was A.T.L. Minkin who said that. Oh, uh, to, to say <laughs> to save people who may be listening from looking it up, it was A.T.L. Minkin. Um, you know, you mentioned punditry, so it's not uncommon to hear a pundit say, "We're a fifty-fifty nation." Uh, maybe we are, maybe we're not, I don't know. Uh, but I, I guess my question is, the way our democratic Republican form of government is constructed, do we need to be a 50-50 nation? To, um, I mean, the economists just polled in March that 27% of Republicans rep uh, approve of what occurred on January 6th. It's, so I guess I'm asking you, is 27% in our Democratic Republican form of government enough to be a destabilizing force? Could be, yeah. Um, I've, I've seen other uh, sort of demographic things that say that it's about a third and a third and a third, so that, you know, a third of the public is identifies as independent, though they lean one way or the other, so it might be 50-50. Um, what I think is really fascinating uh, and I'm sorry if this sort of sidesteps your question, but what I think is really fascinating is recent research about um, what is called the other divide, which is the division between people who are highly politically engaged, which is about 15% of the nation and everybody else, about 85%. 85% of the nation is avoiding political news at all costs, <laughs> like actively uh, avoiding it. Um, you know, they might vote, but not always. And, um, you know, if they do, they're just going to vote down the party line. They're not going to sort of think about the opposition or whatever. Um, and then those people who are extremely politically engaged and those people who are extremely politically engaged are following the news, following the news all day long. They're, um, they are subscribed to news. Um, you know, they pay for it. Um, they watch it. They read it. They argue about it on the Internet. They feel uncomfortable if they miss a political event. <laughs> right. Political information pass them by. Um, they tend to vote in primaries. Right. And so these are the people who are the most engaged. So the news caters to them. 
They're also the ones that give the most money. So parties cater to them and they pick who becomes the nominees in their party. And so again, they get catered to and they tend to be extremists and they're on the left and the right. These political extremists, these political true fans, you know, maybe you, maybe me, definitely probably me. Um, You know, we are the ones that have essentially made politics incomprehensible and unattractive for the rest of the nation, for the 85% of the nation who doesn't want to hear it, who thinks we're ridiculous, who doesn't know what the heck we're talking about, you know, when we're saying things are woke or not woke or groomers or whatnot. Most people do not care. (laughs) They don't care as much as as those of us who are controlling the political conversation do. Um, And so, you know, part of the problem um, that this nation has right now is that the political extremists, the ones who are most engaged, um, have become radicalized. Earlier, we were talking about the role of the citizen. And And I remember, and I do remember this quote, it's from Louis Brandeis. He says, the most important public office is that of private citizen." Given that, um, with the changes, um, you know, that we're not only bombarded by bots and irresponsible news, some call fake news, 24-hour news cycles, social media posts, internet trolls, advertisement, countless other sources appealing to our attention, are we, just given your previous answer, are we even prepared uh, collectively to assume the demands that our form of government demands in order for it to function decently. I'll just say it like that. <laughs> um, yeah. So to be a citizen in this country means that, I mean, you know, the sort of classic definition um, as a political office means that You follow the news enough to know what's going on. You participate in public conversations and public decision-making in the way that you are allowed to, right? And so some communities um, have public meetings where, you know, the citizenry actually gets to discuss and debate and vote on things. Um, Whereas other states have referendums where every, you know, once in a while you get to vote on a policy and others have none of the above. Um, right? So there's differences, but you, you participate in whatever way you're able to in a disinterested and dispassionate way, thinking of the common good. Um, it's possible to do that, but the way that we have, and I'm going to use the word optimized um, because I think that that's probably the right language at this moment, but the way that we've optimized our politics um, over the last 20 years or more um, has been, again, to preclude the possibility of citizenship in that classic way and instead constituted us as propagandists. If we show up at a decision-making event today, we show up as an ambassador for some agenda, right? Already decided and committed to a position and trying to use the force of our body and our voice to 
compel or coerce that decision to be made the way we want it to be made. We don't show up open-minded, um, willing to hear all the evidence, you know, put in front of us. We don't, we're not open to being persuaded by other people. And um, obviously that doesn't work. <laughs> that is, um, that is not persuasion, it's coercion. Um, but at the same time, we can learn these things, right? There's all kinds of really successful communal programs that are designed to teach us how to use fair deliberative processes to deliberate in public about public decision. Um, there are communication departments that teach this. There are dispute resolution centers that teach this. There are organizations um, like the Kettering Foundation that teach this and, and others. Um, you know, lots and lots of different groups have taught this skill to people. Um, and again, we would have learned it by participating in the Rotary Club or something like that a generation or two back. Um, but, but in order to deliberate that way for democracy, for democratic deliberation to work, we have to be open-minded. We have to agree that the rules are the rules, right? We have to allow the facilitator of the conversation to do their job. Um, and the way that we've been constituted as propagandists tells us that doing that is weakness, right? Like we are supposed to show up with an agenda and not with an open mind. Um, and that's that's just not going to work. Well, that sort of goes back to the 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 mythical press conference and and the candidate goes i don't know we see that as weakness so yeah i i i i, I take your point very well um i remember uh several years ago you know one of the things i always when i teach the constitution one of the things i always tell my class i said how do you know when you understand the constitution that you really have you appreciate it <laughs> And that's the question I sort of ask, sort of, and um, they give answers. And, they, and when they want, well, so whenever it's my time to respond to, to my question, I said, well, in my view, it's when you can agree or disagree with something based on the Constitution where you personally feel different about. I said, for example, I don't like the Klan, but I certainly support their right to peacefully assemble on the streets. And I've had, I had a student one year say, I can't do that. But I've increasingly had more students say they can't do that. Is there anything that you, uh, as a communication professor, might say to them who fail to see that is the uh, burden that the Constitution, constitutional adherence pr presents? Oh, that's interesting. So I've been um, I've been reading a lot about tolerance lately um, and uh, intolerance in the political community and the way that um, being tolerant is sort of essential to a, a liberal democratic republic kind of thing, right? Like that if we are tolerant of other people's religious perspectives or their, I guess, racial perspectives or whatever, um, 
then that will allow the community to sort of make decisions and decide for itself what it thinks, right? Like airing these different perspectives. And I think that that's the one that you find in the constitution. Um, But then there's also the argument, and I think it's Popper who makes this, um, that the only thing that a tolerant society should be intolerant of is intolerance. Because the intolerant, the ones who refuse to play the tolerance game, right, who refuse to say like, yeah, you should be able to have your view um, and, and speak it. Those are the ones that will ultimately take over the community because they are intolerant of any other perspective, right? So is your student intolerant for not being tolerant of the intolerant (laughs) is sort of the conundrum, right? Um, And that's where you see people pointing their fingers and pundits especially, right? Saying like, oh, you know, these students today, they're, they only want what they want or whatever, and they won't listen and they won't let anyone talk and they're so unreasonable. But maybe according to Popper, it would be reasonable to be intolerant to the intolerant, right? So if the white nationalist or the Klan member is out there on the street with their signs and they're yelling and making noise and doing what they do, um, you know, if they were in charge, would you allow, would the white nationalist allow your student to stand on the corner and do the same thing? That's the question. Uh, I used to run a organization where we talked about politics on campus and we brought speakers in from all kinds of different perspectives and it's really interesting, good stuff. Uh, But uh, one thing that stands out to me that's relevant here is Terry Burke, who uh, at that time was in charge of the ACLU of Texas. She came to talk to us for free speech week and she said, think about the politician who has the most opposite opinions that you have. The most opposite, the one that you you hear about their policies and it just makes your blood boil. Now, think about giving that person the ability to say what you can and cannot say in public, right? Like, who would you give that power to? Who would you give the power to say what can and can't be said? And the truth is, we don't trust anybody, really, (laughs) to be able to say what we should and shouldn't say. But if we are going to make restrictions um, about that, it seems like the the popper argument about intolerance is a thing that we should consider um, and that we ought to be making those decisions based on what is best for democracy. How long, in your view, uh, can... can, um this American experiment hold on, given that, given the lifespan of republics, the history of republics, I mean, the American experiment is already playing uh, with house money. I mean, does something have to change or can we just sort of muddle through in this sort of hackneyed way that we've created in the first quarter of the 20th century? Yeah, I mean, so this is the time of really dramatic transition Um, and, in, in times of transition and chaos, um, 
you know, things are really unsettled and people freak out, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, people jump into the void and try to take advantage of that. It's a vulnerability. And so right now we're incredibly vulnerable as a nation. Um, I, yeah, I don't, I think America goes on. Um, I don't, <laughs> I, I'm not worried about the American experiment. Um, I'm worried about people who take advantage of the vulnerability that we're in, um, the chaos of climate crisis, the chaos of, um, uh, you know, the way that our media has changed is absolutely a vulnerability for us. The chaos of um, really gross inequality um, in terms of uh, you know, just the number of billionaires and the number of people who have stagnated. Um, you know, like there are so many things that have changed over the last um, 20 years or whatever um, that have really destabilized the world and the nation. And um, it's something that I think we'll get through, but I see people trying to take advantage of that instability and that chaos. Um, and that's what worries me, is that they're successful. Professor Jennifer Mercia, thank you so much. Uh, I really enjoyed being in conversation with you. Thank you for being on The Public Morality today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Those listening to the public rally on WSNC can also listen on a tap. Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click open to listen from anywhere. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.